Welcome back to Peds Ortho. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I'm here with... Hey, this is Joshua coming from University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. And our guest this month, who we're very excited to be sitting down with, is Dr. Colleen Sabatini. Colleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you guys today. Uh, you are too kind and uh, very kind to be here. Jet lag. We'll talk more about your travels um, in just a few minutes. So... Just want to kick things off as usual, letting the audience get to know you a little bit. So you are at UCSF right now. How long have I've you been, been practicing there? Yeah. So I finished my fellowship in 2010 and I joined the faculty of UCSF at that time. Uh, for my first two years, I was based at the UCSF Children's Hospital, which was part of the adult hospital on the Parnassus campus. I was there for two years. Um, and then in 2012, UCSF started an affiliation with the Children's Hospital in Oakland. So then I moved over from San Francisco to Oakland and assumed the sort of director and chief role at Oakland Children's then in 2012. And that was a great move for me because it was a, a move from not a level one trauma center to a level one trauma center and really a, the major safety net hospital for Northern California for children. So it was a, a great place to be. And I have now been there for 11 years. So it's been a good ride. And you have a really cool career that you've set up where you spend a lot of time abroad. Can you tell us a little bit about this arrangement? Yeah. So it's been something that has really evolved over time. When I was a medical student, I knew that I wanted to do public health and global health work before I knew that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And in fact, when I started to, to be exposed to orthopedics, really in my third year clinical rotations in general surgery, we had to do orthopedic surgery. And that's where I had a real existential crisis, actually, because I... How do they go together? Yeah, I was like, oh my God, wait, this is really amazing. And I love this work in the OR. And I had some real difficulty understanding how I was going to combine those things, because at the time, there was not a whole lot of people in the orthopedic community who were talking about global health. So I actually resisted for a little while and then um, and spent a long time trying to have conversations with people about how I was going to make this happen. And I eventually just got to the point where I was like, well, there's no model for what I want to do, but I'm going to just jump in and see what I can make of it. Um, so I, when I was um, a resident, I had the opportunity to continue doing some global health work in the Dominican Republic that I had started when I was a, a medical student in Boston. And then coming into sort of faculty life, I had known for a long time I wanted to do work in East Africa. And uh, after my first few years of keeping my head down and doing work at home and, and really trying to establish my clinical practice and get some research going is when I started to then feel like I could start to pursue my global health interests. So in 2013, um, I had the great opportunity of going to Uganda uh, with Norgrove Penny, who's also a POSNA member. Norgrove is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon on Victoria Island in Vancouver. And that came about because I was interested in East Africa. And when I would go to POSNA meetings or talk to peds ortho folks and say, who do you know that's doing any work in East Africa? Who can I talk to? He was the only name that ever came up. Um, and I tracked him down at a meeting and introduced myself and said, you know, I'm really interested in, in doing work in East Africa. And I wonder, can I go with you sometime? And sure enough, he invited me to go a couple months later. And that was truly a transformational moment for me. Like it opened doors that I never really thought were possible. And I use that as an example in my life for, you know, my mentees of if you know you want to do something, don't be afraid to ask because you never know what will happen. And so I went with him in 2013, got exposed to a few different conditions that piqued my interest, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, met a lot of really wonderful people in the orthopedic and sort of medical communities there and knew that I wanted to keep going back. Um, so from 2015 then to 2019, I made a number of trips, two to three a year for about two weeks at a time, combining sort of vacation time and research work. And then in 2019, I actually went to first my colleagues, my pediatric orthopedic partners, and sort of talked to them about what I wanted to do, got their permission and support to do so, and then went to my chair 
and said, you know, I've been doing a lot of work for a really long time as the sort of the director at Oakland Children's. I had taken a ton of trauma call and just done a lot. And I, I needed a change for myself. I needed to step down from some of that. And I also really wanted to focus again on what I went into orthopedics to do, which was global health. And so I asked to change up my job and I asked to change from, you know, a full-time clinical person to 50% clinical in Oakland and then 50% of my time doing global health work. And that could be, you know, wherever I, I chose to do it. I'll be very clear that his first sentence was, you do realize I will pay you less money. But the fact that his immediate answer wasn't no um, was pretty wonderful. And so we went through sort of a series of negotiations. And so now I am 50% clinical in, in our pediatric orthopedic group, and then 50%, um, which also includes all my conference participation and vacation time. But it gives me about four months or so a year where I am able to be uh, working in other places. And the majority of that time I currently spend in Uganda in East Africa. Really, really amazing. Is there one hospital that you routinely go to there or... Yeah, I have the the real pleasure of actually having affiliations with three hospitals there. And my work there is primarily capacity building oriented. So when we talk about global health, people think of mission surgery where you fly in, you do a bunch of surgeries and you leave. That is not what I do. Um, so everything that I have been working on in Uganda is really focused on education. So advancing pediatric orthopedic care in the country and on research. And so through a lot of that, at work, forged a lot of um, educational collaborations and, and developed a lot of great friendships with colleagues there. And through some partnerships and connections, actually, there's a pediatric orthopedic fellowship that we're running in the country that's financially supported by Mark Berry and the, and the Rotary um, with a number of volunteers from POSNA serving as faculty for the fellowship. And that's been really exciting with the goal to train in-country orthopedic surgeons to be pediatric orthopedic surgeons who will then become the pediatric orthopedic educators of the future. And in a country that currently only has two pediatric orthopedic fellowship trained surgeons for a population of 22 million children, not people, but children, right? So 22 million children, two fellowship trained pediatric orthopedic surgeons. So um, there's a lot of need. I, I want to make a quick plug for something that I would like to talk to you a lot more about in the future. POSNA's POGO group has been working on a sustainable volunteering program to try to create some pathways for POSNA members to get more involved, or I should say involved with less hurdles in global health work. And then we, we talked briefly, but I was recently in uh, Ghana with that group. Steve Adolfson at uh, Rutgers is leading the venture. And uh, we just talked about it a lot on the POGO committee last night, but hopefully everyone listening will keep an eye out for that. We hope there will be sort of a um, systematic opportunity for POSNA members to get involved in something that is, uh, you know, building capacity, uh, sharing education, transferring skills to the uh, the providers there, and then also hopefully some bi-directional transfer of skills as well. So more to come on that. Your research is really fun. So there's a lot of things I want to talk about. You've got a lot of areas covered, a lot of very interesting areas covered. So I think anyone who goes to POSNA meetings routinely knows that you've been involved in the fact study group and you guys have been very active, especially with clavicle fractures and you published on it recently. And at the end of the day, you guys have shown really impressive stuff. Adolescent clavicle fractures tend to do well, even with Z-shaped deformities, even with skin tinting now. So I guess my question is, um, when can I feel okay operating on a clavicle? Because uh, even in the worst case scenario, I'm always a little afraid that you'll find out that I operated on them. <laughs> So first, yeah, it has been a real honor to be a part of the fact study group. So Ben Hayworth at a Boston Children's is really the the sort of catalyst for for that group. He keeps us going. There's eight centers around the country that contributed patients, and it's been really great. As the listeners probably know, you know, some years ago, there was some studies that came out of predominantly Canada that really moved sort of the pendulum from non-operative treatment of clavicles to operative treatment of clavicles. And the whole sort of orthopedic community went way to the operative side. And, and many adolescents started having their clavicles fixed without really any evidence to support the fixation of clavicles in adolescence. But this sort of extrapolation of data from the adult literature to kids. So FACTS basically, you know, has done um, over the last several years, a number of studies looking at 
operative versus non-operative management of clavicle fractures really predominantly based on patient reported outcomes, right? Like what is the functional outcome for patients, not, you know, radiographic healing necessarily, or things that have sort of not been identified as important to patients. So overall, the large cohort, we didn't really find a difference between operative and non-operative treatment. And we were like, okay, well, we sort of expected that, but there's got to be a subpopulation within this that are patients that would actually have a better outcome if we operated on them. So we started to look at all of the things that we sort of thought should be operated upon. So, right, like the shortened fractures, the comminuted Z-type, right, the dreaded Z-type fracture, like that's an indication in lots of people's minds. As you just mentioned, skin tenting or, you know, the threatened skin, overhead athletes, right? And really in all of those subpopulation studies, we have not found any difference in outcomes for the patients. And so really at this point, I think, you know, the majority of us, sort of advise families that there really is no difference in outcome here. We talk about how there's not really a difference in complications because we sort of wave away the sensory complications. And certainly there's more sensory complaints in the operatively treated group. But we're actually digging into that a little bit more now and saying, are these sensory complications as benign as we think they are? Because if if it's bothersome to you to carry a bag over your operative side or to wear your seatbelt, if it's your operative side, is that really so innocuous, right? So we are looking at the sensory complications too. But the only actual difference is time to return to sport. And both from our, our work and from a couple other things that have come out in the last few years, really you're looking at a two to three week difference in time to return to sport. And is the surgical risk and honestly the cost um, for families that actually have a share of cost and really the ethics of that in terms of the cost to the health system, is that worth it? And I think that that really, the conversation of saying there really is no difference in outcome unless you want to go back to sport two to three weeks earlier, but here's your potential complication risk. I think a lot less people would be excited about putting their child through surgery in that regard. So it's been an incredible amount of work. I think it's been a very thoughtful you know, group to be a part of, and we really have tried to find things that we should operate on. But, you know, even skin tenting got presented at the academy meeting this year and showed that even in the setting of threatened or at-risk skin, there was actually not a difference in outcome. Yeah, really impressive work you guys are doing. Congratulations on that. A lot of questions that you've asked and answered that are uh, changing people's practices. So, well, you've published a few times on supercondylars, one recently in the 2023 April issue of JPO, where you looked at, quote-unquote, new injury patterns in pediatric supracondylar fractures during the COVID pandemic. And you guys found that there were 50% less supracondylars, not surprising there. The patients were getting younger, and there were more furniture and trampoline injuries, presumably because people have trampolines at home, whereas there were less monkey bars, presumably because people were not going to parks. But the uh, the Gartland types, the neurovascular injuries, those rates didn't really change. What are are your takeaways from this study? Any keys that you would uh, want to share with the audience? Yeah, trampolines are bad. I think to me, that's sort of the the most important, the most important finding of the study. And it, I mean, really children will find ways to get hurt and trauma services will be needed regardless of what pandemic is happening in the world. So I think that, you know, this study really compared pre-pandemic to intra-pandemic um, changes in, in supracondylar injury patterns. So first of all, 50% reduction in the number, but a shift from monkey bars because the kids weren't going to school. This was during one of the at-home periods, but we had a number of families in the Bay Area of California all go out and buy trampolines. And so, you know, a big transition from monkey bars to trampolines, and then a lot more children falling off the furniture. Again, not surprising. So I think that you see a lot more kids, instead of jumping off the monkey bars, they're jumping off the beds, they're flipping off the back of the couches. I'm sure we saw that all over the country. And then the younger children, I think, you know, we had a lot more kids not going to daycare, a lot more younger kids, you know, not in after school programs and parents at home trying to both work and keep an eye on their children. So um, I think we saw, you know, more at-home injuries because there's a lot more kids at home all the time. And parents really put in a stressful situation of having to be able to both monitor the kids and do their jobs. And so I think kids just gotten a lot 
more trouble at home. Um, we actually are doing a follow-up study looking specifically at sort of the unsupervised child at home during that time and what kind of injury epidemiology beyond just orthopedics happens. So ingestions and burns and things like that. Mm. You know, and we expected to sort of find less severe injuries because if you fall off a bed versus monkey bars, you'd expect that, you know, maybe your supracondyl would be less severe. But in fact, all of the injury severity remained the same, mostly because trampolines contributed a, a lot more but kids are still going to get hurt. And then I think the other thing that was important for this study for us is like everywhere else, you know, we started doing a lot more video visits um, and telehealth work. We sort of proved to ourselves that you could do, you know, as adequate a post-operative follow-up over video as you could in person for a supracondyl humerus fracture. And so that's helped us, you know, continue to then do that in the return to normal period that we're in right now, where why make parents, you know, pay for gas and parking and whatnot to come for their in-person visit when you could just do that over video. You know, we went from like a couple of percent follow-up over video to 30% or, or more actually in this group. And also that you don't need to follow patients as long. I think we, we had some people that were following people for probably longer than they needed to. And, and we had a shorter follow-up with the in the intra-pandemic time. And I think that's led, led to some practice changes for us that we thought were worthy to share with others. So what do you tell people about trampolines? Are you just a no-go or one at a time? Or do you have any other specific advice you tell them? Yeah, so my sort of public health message to parents is I do not recommend trampolines because I think that they're dangerous for lots of reasons, both from a head injury perspective as well as musculoskeletal trauma. If you are going to get a trampoline, then you should only allow one child to jump at a time and, and that you should have the safety net up. It's funny because hearing your, your study results, my thought was what I tell patients, which is, if you don't have a trampoline, they're going to be climbing in a tree and falling out of a tree, or they're going to be at the playground falling off the monkey bars. So the conversation that I have with families, which I would say probably is supported by your results too, is injuries are going to happen to kids. And I think no matter what kids are doing, they will find a way to get hurt. And I actually look at it a slightly different way and say, kids will find a way to get hurt, whether it's at home falling off a couch or climbing in a tree or at school on the playground or on their trampoline. You still have that uh, trampoline story father, father of three boys right there. <laughs> yeah. Boys <laughs> with the trampoline. Um, all right. So next up was another supracondylar study you published. This one was a little while ago, uh, 2020 in International Orthopedics. And you guys did a review looking at supracondylar humerus fractures in low and lower middle income countries. And basically the conclusion was that there just wasn't a lot of good data out there. So I'm curious, what have you seen change in supracondylar treatment in Uganda at the places you've been visiting since you've been going? Yeah. So it wasn't surprising to find that there was not a lot of literature from low and low middle income countries. You know, we, we complain about not have research support in this country. Like they most assuredly do not have research support in lots of other places in the world. Most of them don't work for academic institutions. So don't even get sort of the nod from an advancement and promotion perspective. And so there's real, really no incentive to do research and not a lot of infrastructure support for it. So not surprising, but, you know, wanted to highlight what work had been done. And, and so really, this was just a summary to say, like, what's out there. Also, this came from, I have seen a number of kids who had supracondyl humerus fractures that went untreated by an orthopedic surgeon were treated, but treated by bone setters or what we would consider sort of traditional healers in various countries, some with perfectly fine outcomes and some without. And so just wanting to look and see what was out there. The, the other real thing is, you know, the acknowledgement that we perseverate a lot on all different aspects of supracondylar management, right? Our pin configurations, how we put them in, what timing, you know, can we do it in under 18 hours or does it have to be under 24 hours? And when the reality is in the vast majority of the world, patients come five days later, six days, you know, three weeks after they fall, like the vast majority of children don't have access to surgery. There's 1.7 billion children in the world who don't have access to surgical care. And so what about them, right? What happens with those late presenting supercondylars? And we had hoped to find literature on that and be able to talk about what happens to the supercondylar the type three that follows up three months later for the first time when the family's like, hey, why does the arm look this way? 
but really didn't find anything written about that because most everything that's published, even from low, low middle income countries is, is surgical management of the acutely treated supracondylar because there's just nobody else presenting on the other, on the other work. And now I have some focus on that, right? Like what about, you know, the later presenting supracondylars? What about the kids that come in at, you know, day five or day 12, um, or with the healed one, right? And so I think that's what we need to start looking at because the majority of the world doesn't have the luxury of getting them acutely and being able to fix them acutely. Certainly there is some literature out there from like the 1970s about comparing traction to closed reduction and percutaneous pinning and the outcomes are actually quite similar, which I think surprises people um, in terms of motion and function, but obviously the length of stay and the and the cost to the family and the system for keeping somebody in traction for multiple weeks um, has to be factored in, but in a place where you have no access to surgery, at least the treatment with traction will get you a, a functional elbow. You know, have you seen some changes in the the practice? For example, when I, I think about one trip I went on and now walking into the OR in a, a relatively sophisticated teaching hospital in a low-income country, and there was a pretty basic supracondylar that, you know, would have just gotten some pins here and the whole anterior elbow was flayed open and the big open reduction. And, you know, they were very skilled surgeons with regards to trauma and they got an excellent reduction and got a pin and sewed it up. But, you know, I wonder if, uh, if you've seen practice changes in your time there. Fluoroscopy is the major thing that has led to practice changes. So one of the hospitals that I have done some work at you know, several years ago, there was no fluoroscopy unit. So everything was treated with olecranon traction and the kids were in the hospital for a long time. And now there's a fluoroscopy unit so they can be treated, you know, via what we would consider the standard of care for us, which is, you know, closed reduction percutaneous pinning. I think um, helping surgeons get more comfortable with fluoroscopy and then deciding what's acceptable and what's not has been something that I have been able to help folks with. Because, you know, when you're used to either treating it with traction and sort of accepting it as it is, or doing it open as you described and really being able to make sure it's perfect, getting to the point where you're comfortable with fluoroscopy and being able to evaluate, you know, your angles and your columns and your anti-humor lines and, you know, feeling confident with that has been an important thing to pass on. Similarly, they've taught me a ton about late presenting supracondylars and, you know, cubitus varus surgery and all of that. So that's why the bi-directional learning and collaboration is really critical. Very nice. Definitely. All right. So next, I want to change gears a little bit. This is a study you published last year called Implicit Racial Bias in Pediatric Orthopedic Surgery. It was in JPO and you guys sent a survey out to pediatric orthopedists and got 119 respondents and found that 87% had some implicit bias, which was mostly pro-white. And more concerningly, almost 30% had strong pro-white bias, which is higher than the general U.S. population and higher than the general U.S. physician population. Some good news out of it was that they're in the sample vignettes that that bias didn't seem to affect treatment decisions like uh, opioid prescription. Hopefully that translates into real life too. How did this study come about? I have to give much and all, pretty much all credit to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia crew who really led this study. So Christine Goodbody, who was a fellow at CHOP that year, Ryan Guzek, who was their Ben Fox fellow, and Aperva Shah, my dear friend and colleague, they invited me to be a part of this study. So I cannot claim credit for the initiation of this idea, but was truly honored to be invited to participate. And Aperva and I, plug for this, became close through being POSNA traveling fellows to together. So we were 2019 Posna Slayoti traveling fellows. It was a perva myself and Salil Upasani. Phenomenal experience. Two of the best human beings that I have come to know and love. And so Aperva and I had many conversations around, you know, implicit bias and DEI in orthopedics. And so he invited me to be a part of this. And I think the real important thing about this study, you know, we, we sort of worked on this, the study design and the questionnaire and all of that. My biggest take home is that we all have bias and sort of this idea that I don't see race or I treat all my patients the same. That idea is wonderful. And I, I, we all should aspire to that. But the reality is that's not the reality. Uh, 
um, that we all have some form of bias. And so this study, hopefully, if you know people took the time to read it, hopefully inspired them to do some implicit bias testing. So it's not even just race. There's you know all sorts of different implicit bias tests that you can do to help you see where you might have some subconscious thoughts about a particular group of people um, that you're not aware of. And by being aware of your bias, you can call your own self out and make sure that you are treating your patients, your colleagues, random people on the streets as sort of humanely and, and, and kindly as possible. And I think particularly as physicians, we need to be aware that we might have some sort of thoughts about certain populations that might affect the surgeries we offer, the care that we provide, and that type of stuff. So that's really the take home of this is that pediatric orthopedic surgeons, which I like to think are the most progressive of the orthopedic surgeon community, have more bias than the general physician population in the United States and the general population period. And that's not a criticism. That's just a, an awareness raiser. Um, and we're doing some additional work around this, right? So trying to, to look more than to into how bias between the physician and the patient and parents might affect treatment and things like that. So some more to come there. So it seems like the next step then is always some sort of training. Like, for example, a lot of programs before residency interviews will have all the staff do some training that may range from a full day of courses to like an optional three-minute video that they may or may not watch. Do you have any experience or uh, opinions on how that should be delivered? Yeah. So I think first, making sure people understand that they have bias, right? And no matter how you know much they they think that they don't, that we all do. And so that's why I think before you're going to do any of those trainings, you have to understand that some people have race bias, some people have gender bias, some people have ability bias, right? So they they see somebody with you know assisted device or a wheelchair. Some people have bias about people who are members of the LGBTQ population, and there's implicit bias tests for all of those things. So by all means, please do them. And so do you have I a favorite implicit bias test that you recommend, like that you point people to? The Harvard Implicit Bias Project yep. is sort of where most of this comes from. And you just go to that website and there's just a whole host of different tests that you can do. And it's really interesting, actually. They're open to everybody. You don't have to pay for them. They're totally free. So please check it out. And so I, I would hope that all of us in the orthopedic community are, you know, through our different programs are really, you know, trying to dig deep in this space and um, making sure that we understand that it's what's best for our patients and the communities that we serve to be aware of, you know, systemic issues in healthcare, um, particularly systemic racism, and how we can best care for the diverse communities that we all have the honor of, of serving. And so this is really just one step of trying to help raise awareness around this issue. And next up, um, another not strictly clinical study. Uh, you were involved in a JPO study from 2021 that we discussed actually briefly on this podcast, but I want to circle back to it since you're with us, the prevalence of bullying among pediatric orthopedic patients. And the study showed that lots of kids are bullied. 3% of pediatric orthopedic patients describe severe exposure to bullying and another 36% describe some sort of moderate exposure, which is a little bit higher than the general population again. You know, we all hate to hear this, but we all probably feel somewhat helpless. What can we be doing? You know, are there certain things that you use to raise awareness or counsel patients? Yeah, this has been some really interesting work that our group has done together. So uh, one of my junior partners, Kristen Livingston, is the lead PI on this. The idea actually came from one of our other partners, Ellie Delgado, um, and our team is sort of you know, worked on this first study that came out. And now we're doing some subpopulation work around some of the conditions specifically to dig more deeper into like foot deformities and scoliosis and kids that wear scoliosis braces and things like that. So more to come on this topic. But in general, I mean, I think for some of us, we were surprised that the numbers were as low as they were, relatively speaking, because, uh, you know, maybe you might think that 100% of kids with a brace or an assistive device might mm -hmm. get teased or bullied. But obviously, it's all horrific that any of them do. But also, I think we were surprised that like kids with fractures boots, for example, um, are even subject to bullying or, or with crutches, right? So short-term injuries, like, I mean, kids will pick on anybody who has something yeah. different than the norm, right? What are we doing about that, Carter, is a, a really great question. And I think we are still trying to work on that as well, right? How do we, so we have a social worker now, thank goodness for our clinic, which we didn't have for a really long time or ever actually. And we finally have one of those. So how do we help build resilience quickly in kids who want to acutely have a change in their life and now are on crutches or have a fracture boot or whatever um, versus those who have a, a chronic problem, right? Who uh, sort of build that up more over time. And, and I think we don't quite know yet. I think one of the things that 
I would love to do is to develop some sort of resilience curriculum for those kids and then study that and see, like, does this actually help, right? Like, how do you respond at school when somebody says XYZ to you, right? Because I think that's what the problem is, is that the kids don't necessarily know how to defend themselves or explain, you know, what's going on so that people ideally will leave them alone. I've certainly had some kids in my practice where they were having some issues at school and they had, you know, long-term brace wears for arthrogryposis or cerebral palsy. And I've even talked to teachers on the phone, right, with the parents' permission, obviously, to explain the child's condition in hopes that maybe um, we could provide better support in the classroom for kids to understand the issue and provide more support to that student as opposed to being um, horribly negative to them. So I think this is something that we as a community can, you know, of pediatric orthopedic surgeons working with our social work um, and counseling colleagues could really stand to do some work around. And I think it would really be helpful to our patient population to do that. And maybe this is something that I should go to POSNA, you know, like the advocacy committee or something, see if we could do some work around this. Because I, I do think that this impacts all of our kids all over U.S. and Canada, right? Really all over the world. There's no place in the world where kids are exempt from bullying from their peers. Uh, yeah, I love that answer. We've talked on this podcast before about how certain things like resilience, which seem intrinsic, are actually modifiable variables and training can make a difference. So that's that's a really cool idea. Next up, I printed out and read five or six articles that you were involved with on a condition that I know nothing about. Can you tell us about gluteal fibrosis and post-injection paralysis in Uganda and other low and lower middle income countries? I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because this is actually like, this is my passion project in, in my world. That trip that I talked about before, when I first went to Uganda in 2013, I was at one of the hospitals up in sort of this more village remote area of Uganda. And there was a group of kids that were playing football, otherwise known as soccer to us. Um, and they were running around with a very awkward gait that I couldn't quite explain. They were running with like very externally rotated hips um, without really flexing through the hip. They were kind of high kneeing. It was just odd. The markedly externally rotated gait was really striking to me. And so I asked, like, what, why are they all run? Like, what is this that they are all here for? Because I cannot explain in my orthopedic mind why they all look like that. And I was standing next to one of the um, hospital's physical therapists or the only physical therapist of the hospital. She was like, they have gluteal fibrosis. And I looked at Norgrove and I was like, what is gluteal fibrosis? And although he knew what it was, it was not there when he used to work at this hospital, you know, 13 years before. Interesting. Um, and had not seen it really there either. And so I asked a bunch of questions and really came to learn that gluteal fibrosis is like this, you know, this thing that they had been having, particularly in this area of Uganda, where the gluteal muscles become fibrotic uh, and the kids have limited hip range of motion. And they had been doing surgeries for these kids, like mission surgery, where a group from the Netherlands was flying in and doing surgical camps, releasing like 100 kids with gluteal fibrosis, uh, you know, a few times a week over the course of a year. Um, and this was a surgical camp for those kids. So there was like a hundred kids there uh, waiting to have surgery that week for gluteal fibrosis. And I had a lot of questions and sort of filed those in my mind. We went across the road down to an orthopedic hospital that was built in, in this village area by an orthopedic surgeon, phenomenally entrepreneurial and charismatic orthopedic surgeon by the name of John Akure built a hospital in the village he grew up with called Kumi Orthopedic Center. And I was in clinic with him that afternoon and there was a kid with an acute foot drop. So three weeks weeks prior, had been living a normal life, got an injection in his butt for, you know, a febrile illness and had really bad pain and then an acute onset foot drop. And I was like, oh, and he was like, what is that? And I was like, uh, an injection injury, um, having never seen that myself. Uh, so that's very clearly post-injection paralysis. And so in one day, I saw gluteal fibrosis and post-injection paralysis. And as a public health person who decided to then go into orthopedics, this was like a really amazing moment in my life where I realized that there was a public health problem that was causing orthopedic disability and I was supposed to do something about it. And so that actually started me then on this whole path, trying to figure out what the heck was going on. So everybody there has, you know, sees this all the time. So gluteal fibrosis is a multiple injection phenomena where you get injection after injection after injection at a young age and you get a fibrotic infiltration of the gluteal muscles that then leads to this very limited hip range of motion where you can't flex and 
keep adducted your legs. So when you squat, for example, the legs are markedly uh, externally rotated and abducted. And so you can't squat with your legs straight, which like with, like with your knees together, which to us in a non-squatting culture doesn't probably sound like that big of a deal. But if you could see the pictures that I show of this, like you can't sit normal in a chair, you can't squat to go to the bathroom, which is this a pit latrine environment. And the kids actually have a fair amount of hip and low back pain. They can't bend well through their hips. So they really have to bend a lot through their low back in an agricultural society where the kids do a lot of outdoor work, it's really difficult. So that first trip for me was really hearing stories from these kids about how this was really impacting their lives and trying to understand where this was coming from. And really what it led to was mapping out an entire sort of research program, trying to understand what are these conditions? Like, what do we already know about them from the existent literature? What are the problems in Uganda and maybe even from broader in East Africa in terms of the epidemiology, who's getting them, what are the risk factors, all of that. What are the surgical treatments for these conditions and have we really evaluated their outcomes? And then how can we prevent more kids from having these problems, right? So they are absolutely iatrogenic injuries. So they are absolutely preventable. So that's like the major thing. Let's not have any more. But for the hundreds and thousands of children who have these conditions, how can we optimize their care? And so that's what's led to all the studies that you have seen and many more that are ongoing right now, looking at different aspects of that. And it sounds like the surgeries do work. There's basically scar releases. Yep. So there's actually a fair amount of literature on gluteal fibrosis out there. Uh, one of the first studies that we did was a systematic review looking at all the available literature on gluteal fibrosis and really found about 18 studies that met our criteria of you know 10 patients or more treated for gluteal fibrosis. The majority of the literature currently is mostly out of China and Taiwan. Gluteal fibrosis was previously described, you know, sort of all throughout the world back in the 70s when a lot of intramuscular injections were given. Mm -hmm. People might be more familiar with quadriceps fibrosis and deltoid fibrosis from like people in the U.S. who, you know, inject steroids into their deltoids, they get deltoid fibrosis. So this is that sort of same mechanism, but it's into the gluteal muscles. And instead of steroids, it's usually, you know, an effort to save a child's life in the setting of malaria. And, and part of the studies that we've done is trying to figure out why are all these injections Injections being given? What are the systemic yeah. issues that's leading to injection over oral medication when actually an oral medication would be better, right? So we probably don't have time on the podcast for me to tell you all of those things, but you know, we did a whole qualitative study looking at what the motivation is for using injection when theoretically they're more expensive and they have greater risk. And really it's because people don't know that they have greater risk and people think that because it hurts more, it's stronger and therefore it's going to be better for their child and more likely to make them better. So they actually pay more money to get the thing that's actually potentially more dangerous. There's economic disincentives in the community where mm -hmm. clinics can make more money off of selling, you know, an injection. And honestly, the injections are being given by a lot of people who are not actually trained to be giving injections. They're not doctors or nurses. Maybe they're a lab tech working in a private clinic. Um, so there's lots of issues. And that's what some of this research has really tried to highlight because I had to show those things in order to then advocate for change, right? In order to change regulations on things, you have to show that the lack of regulations in certain areas is causing this problem. So that's what some of that work has been. So with gluteal fibrosis, to, to get back to your actual questions about the surgical treatment, with gluteal fibrosis, again, multiple studies that have shown like open and arthroscopic techniques work, but nothing in Africa. So there was a, there's only one study that's ever been published out of sub-Saharan Africa on gluteal fibrosis that was actually done by my friend, John Okure. That was a three-month follow-up and not perhaps as robust as we might have wanted for long-term care. So the first study that actually I did on the surgical treatment of gluteal fibrosis was in 2018 went back to that group of kids that I met in 2013 that were like my aha life-changing moment kids. And we found about 79% of that group of kids um, that had had surgery that week that I was there in 2013 in the field watching them play soccer. We were able to find them through home visits and school visits and um, looked at their outcomes. And thankfully, that physical therapist that I had met in 2013 had done some really good range of motion assessments on the majority of those kids and had done some functional assessments on them as well. So we were able to do a five-year comparison in their range of motion and their functional outcomes and showed that, you know, the majority of them had sustained benefit in terms of both range of motion, but more importantly, in terms of their ability to do things like eat while sitting down because before surgery, they either had to lay on their stomachs to eat or stand up because they couldn't squat or even sit sideways. They could actually use the toilet. They could go to school every day. They could participate in PE. Um, so that was really um, important work. 
And then we had started sort of the process for a prospective study that got uh, sort of thwarted by COVID, but that will pick back up again uh, now that we're, you know, sort of outside our research restrictions from COVID. And then in terms of post-injection paralysis, interestingly, although that's probably more common still and and widespread, it's not as well recognized because it's a bit more subtle. And, you know, the problem with post-injection paralysis for people who have never seen it is, first, it's very painful when the nerve gets injured. Two, it's then usually an acute onset of a foot drop. But when that foot drop doesn't resolve, which in the vast majority of cases, it probably doesn't, it then leads over time to what we would consider like an acquired clubfoot deformity, right? So they get an equinocava varus foot because of the muscle imbalance from the sciatic nerve being injured. And there's different levels of sciatic nerve injury. So there's different levels of, you know, sometimes the posterior tib works, sometimes it doesn't. So the main hospital that I do a lot of my work at and have, have really wonderful partners is a hospital called Corsu. Um, They're the PED sort of ortho and plastics hospital in Uganda. And over a six-year period, we retrospectively looked at all the post-injection paralysis that was treated there. It took care of 402 children surgically over that six-year period, which is just, let's stop there, 402 kids being treated with surgery for an iatrogenic injury in a country that doesn't have good surgical access for kids, right? So there's lots of kids with like life-threatening conditions, limb-threatening conditions, major issues that are not preventable, that can't get access to surgery, and you're spending resources taking care of things that are iatrogenic. So right there, we need to sort of shift that so that we stop having, um, you know, preventable problems that then require surgery. Some of those kids required as many as three or more surgeries. And sort of, we were just really trying to understand epidemiologically, where are these kids coming from? They're coming from all over the country. So it's not just one area that you're getting post-injection paralysis from. There's significant years of delay in coming to care. So many of are coming with really bad foot deformities with trophic ulcers and other things. And then we wanted to just document what types of surgeries were being done and if a plantigrade outcome was achieved or not. And so that's was sort of the purpose of that study. And that led us to understand, again, just the huge burden of disease, epidemiologically, the widespread nature of post-injection paralysis. And it led to us then developing a pathoanatomy study, which we're going to be starting soon, just trying to better characterize post-injection paralysis and sort of its range of manifestations, because it's not well documented in the literature, and then develop a treatment algorithm that we can then test so that we can know what the best interventions are going to be for kids, depending on their level of involvement with their injection paralysis and the foot deformity that has resulted. And the other thing is before the kids even need surgery, is there a way that we can intervene? So certainly in the neurosurgical literature, there's some information around neurolysis. And if the kids can come in early enough, can they have a neurolysis procedure that then will help the nerve recover faster? So that's a whole education campaign around recognizing that there's a problem that people need to bring their children in for care. Or maybe we don't catch it early enough then, but we catch it before the foot deformity develops. So then what is the role of physical therapy embracing for preventing the foot deformity? And is there a role for, you know, posterior tib transfer or something like that? If the posterior tib works, that might prevent deformity from, you know, developing over time and preventing the need for long-term bracing. Sorry, I'm so long-winded on this, but this is literally my favorite thing to talk about. No, this is great. Uh, I love reading about it and then hearing you talk about it because... This was something I didn't know anything about. I felt like I had like missed a, a section on ortho bullets as a resident and just hadn't heard of something. I was like having flashbacks to being a junior resident in morning conference and not knowing anything about a whole topic. We so, don't really see it in America because there's not really a lot of intramuscular injections given. But I yeah. will say that it is important to know that these exist because actually when I was starting this work, Vince Mosca, um, interestingly, in 2015, published an article about four children treated at Seattle Children's, three of which had derotational osteotomies of their hips before they recognized that these kids had gluteal fibrosis. Um, wow. And so the derotational osteotomies did nothing because the problem was the muscle, not the bone. And so interestingly, the point of that article, I mean, they made it into like an over-test sort of article, but I think what really was impactful about that is the point was that these were all, these were four girls that had been adopted from China. And so they had had intramuscular injections as babies and they had the classic findings of gluteal fibrosis. They had, you know, limited hip flexion and obligate abduction. They had, you know, dimpling and pocking of their buttocks and they just didn't know that that's a thing. And so, you know, a few of them had surgery and ideally would not have. And that's actually happened in Uganda too. I've met a few adults that had surgery, you know, 10 years Mm -hmm. ago and it did not do anything for their motion because the bone is not the problem. It's the muscle. Wow. So have you been able to gain any traction in spreading the word to please stop doing these intramuscular gluteal injections? 
Yeah. So data was important first. So that's what I focused on the first couple of years and then have started, had started to do a lot of discussions with some key leaders in the country about how the best way to navigate that was. And then COVID hit and everybody's attention went a lot of different places, of course. Um, and so we're really just trying to pick that back up right now. So I gave a presentation at the Orthopedic Society of Uganda meeting in February, and there's lots of people who are really in- interested in taking this up as an advocacy issue. I've done actually a podcast um, a couple years ago about this to try to raise awareness throughout Africa, because I don't think this is just in Uganda that some of this is happening. You know, the national newspaper published something a few years ago about this, um, but that's where I'm and the team really trying to focus right now is, is on advocacy. But you can't advocate for advocacy until you can tell people where the issues are and where the intervention points are. So that's some of the work that we've really been trying to do is get that data to make sure that we're targeting the right things in terms of working to prevent prevent these things. Really amazing work you're doing. Impressive. So at this point, I want to change gears again. I know you have a passion for taking care of dancers. Mm-hmm. And that's probably some another thing that is either a black box or scary to many of us. So what are the sort of top pearls that you keep in mind or tell trainees when you're taking care of, whether it's dancers' feet or dancers' hips or that challenging population? Yeah, I think for me, I love taking care of dancers because I was a dancer when I was younger. I danced for like 27 years because I started when I was three. And I remember having lots of pain and problems when I was young, uh, for which I went to an orthopedic surgeon who I was not a nice person, by the way. And so it took me a long time to recover from those interactions, but I just didn't understand like what I was saying, or I was trying to explain like what was causing me pain. And it really helps to speak the language of dance when you're trying to take care of dancers. And obviously not everybody can go learn about dance. So I'm not, I'm not telling you that you have to do that, but listen to them and give them the opportunity to show you the things that are causing them pain. So that's what I try to sort of teach people, right? Because many times you don't know what they're just, they're, what they're talking about. Like when I do this particular move, it hurts me, let them do that move. And I, I think a lot of us do that, but I would encourage other people who maybe don't to do so, you know, give them some space, let them show you the the leap, the jump, the bar work, whatever it is, um, and really try to understand what it is that's causing the problem. And I think the other thing is that the vast majority of problems in dancers are non-operatively amenable. So it's actually quite rare, I think, that a dancer coming to you with, you know, hip pain or even foot pain is going to end up with surgery, uh, particularly in in the young, right? Obviously, I'm not talking about the professional dancers who, you know, get earlier hip arthritis or or other things. But in our our child and adolescent population, I would say a lot of the pain problems that we see are a combination of poor technique and muscle weakness or imbalance. And so making sure that we really exhaust non-operative means is going to be really important. And the best thing that you can do for a dancer is to connect them with a physical therapist who is a dance physical therapist. And again, not everybody has the luxury of that, but it's really important and valuable for them to work with somebody who understands their particular you know, form of dance and can target the muscles that are really important for a dancer. So I would say in young people, uh, hip pain is often a combination of, you know, weak core, weak hip girdle muscles, um, and combined in some cases with not optimal flexibility or the flip side of uh, hypermobility. And we can fix a lot of that through physical therapy. And then other things, it's like just technique, right? They're trying to get their leg up here like everybody else, but maybe they're not doing it the right way. And so they're, they're causing themselves harm by poor technique. And so working on the technique and the muscle balance is really important. Same thing with the feet, um, making sure that, you know, they're optimizing their their stretching of their feet, that they're wearing good shoes, that they're doing proper technique, that they're not dancing on bad floors. Those are all important things. And then, you know, foot pain in a dancer, obviously, um, there's a whole multitude of things that it can be. But oftentimes that, too, is a technique issue, particularly in our point ballerinas and making sure that they are not going on point before they are ready. And there's a whole point readiness assessment that is, you know, sort of documented out there that can be done by physical therapists to make sure that they are ready to go up on point before they go up on point so that they don't cause themselves long term pain and problems. Yeah, I remember you telling me that once in the past, and I immediately found a couple dance physical therapists in the area, and it is awesome. It has certainly helped my clinic. Hopefully, it's helped the patients too. Awesome! No, that's great to hear. Yay! All right, last up, we're going to transition into the lightning round. I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to hand things over to Josh and Craig to talk about some uh, recent interesting articles. 
All right. So the first one is an interesting article, and this is shows some of my ignorance to ultrasound. And really, I am completely aware of really some of the magical stuff that can be done with ultrasound. I, I certainly think this is something that could be useful regarding nursemaid's elbow. So um, this is a study out of Taiwan, and essentially they're presenting a new ultrasound finding that both helps to diagnose and also confirm the reduction of nursemaid's elbow. So unlike some other um, lightning round articles where we can really get a, a take-home point or a number or something to target, really this is interesting and I would encourage any of the listeners who have access to and or are on the front lines in urgent care or emergency room settings that probably see more nursemaid's elbow than some of us otherwise do, you know, they've got really great diagrams and descriptions of this finding that they look for on a pretty simple ultrasound view of the radial head, seeing this partial eclipse sign, which, um, again, you'll have to pull up the article to see, which will be linked to the podcast here. But uh, it, it looks pretty clear. There's a, there's a lot of ultrasounds I look at and certainly still just see fuzziness. But this is a pretty convincing first step in describing both this finding as well as then the ability to adequately treat and reduce and have confidence that you've treated and reduced this pathology that sometimes is a bit nebulous and here at least different people pulling on kids' arms in different ways and trying different things to make the pain go away. Um, but I think this is a, a really interesting idea to look at it with ultrasound. And like I said, they show some pretty good pictures that are quite compelling that this is something that maybe we should adopt in a lot of different settings in urgent care and emergency departments and even potentially like an orthopedic clinic um, that sees a lot of outpatients. So congratulations to the, the group out of Taiwan and the work that they've done to, I think, kind of bring this thing to light. And I guess I would ask you, Colleen, is ultrasound something that um, you do much with? And as you were talking about some of the, the trials with using fluoroscopy and other things in other parts of the world, obviously ultrasound machines are a little more portable and mobile, less radiation, certainly less expensive, but are there things that you have seen or experienced in, in, your, in your work overseas that ultrasound has kind of piqued some interest for you? Yeah, so I will say that I we we don't have ultrasound availability. I'm actually trying to work to get some, you know, we have there's ultrasound probes now that you can use with your smartphones. Um and I'm trying to get those so that we can do baby hip evaluations over there. So I don't really have anything to comment on in terms of sort of that sort of more low income country perspective, except to say x-ray is hard to get too, right? So even um, some of the work around using ultrasound for fracture diagnosis and fracture alignment assessment, I think is pretty exciting and interesting. And honestly, I thought this was a really cool study. I think, thank you for letting me know about it because I totally missed this one. I think this is really interesting for what we do here, right? Like in our own domestic practices, this, this whole issue of, you know, is this a nursemaid's elbow or not? You know, is this an occult super condo? How cool is it to have something that doesn't require x-ray that can, you know, answer people's questions about that? So I, I thought this was a really, really interesting and invaluable study. I mean, I'm sure all of us don't see a lot of nursemaids, right? They don't usually get to the point of coming to us. Um, but there's always that tricky one that the ER calls you about. And how great would that be to be able to say, hey, let's stick a probe on that and see, see what we learn. We're gonna we're gonna take a step back from international and head down to uh, the heartland of Texas. Um, so this study is from Texas Scottish Rite, uh, led by their PT and their certified uh, prosthetist and orthotics group. Um, Amy McIntosh, also a co-author. So I'll I won't give you the title. I'm gonna just set it up and then ask what you guys think they found. So this is a prospective study. They uh, were essentially comparing patients who uh, they were doing a nighttime brace for scoliosis, uh, less than 35 degrees. Um, so early on, uh, patients with lumbar, thoracic lumbar curves. And um, choice-based, they had half their group uh, choose to do scoliosis-specific exercises led by the physical therapist, and the other half just braced at night. They controlled for the data pretty well. Uh, in terms of brace monitors and logs on how often they're doing the exercises. Their primary outcome is um, what is the final change in the curve and what was progression? So my question for you is, did they find a difference between patients who were nighttime bracing with the addition of scoliosis-specific exercises? Carter, I know this is, I know you loved looking at this one because you talk about night bracing all the time 
and I, I don't know if there's anyone who loves uh, uh, prospective studies on scoliosis specific exercise more than you. So I love everything. Um, going you probably already here. I, you I already do know, know the answer. answer. I mean, I'll tell you before I read it, I would have been a cranky naysayer and said, no, the brace is all that matters. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You just gave something away there. Josh, what's the answer? <laughs> uh, I think that doing some exercises during the day may fill the role of wearing your brace during the day, wearing your brace uh, a bit longer. So I would, I would guess that in nighttime only population that doing exercises probably helps on top of the nighttime only bracing. That's such a, such an Iowa answer. Yeah. I am not the a home of the brace okay. study. Nighttime You're bracing. not a nighttime bracer. I take it. <laughs> um, Colleen, do you have any, any input on, on this or any thoughts to share? So I too am not a nighttime bracer. I am a Boston overlap brace, 18 to 20 hour a day bracer. Um, but I love the idea of, you know, finding things that um, that can give us good outcomes. And I always love the idea of using physical therapy or any type of yoga-like activities to try to prevent scoliosis. So, but I read the abstract, so I know the answer too. <laughs> okay. So um, they did see a difference between groups and final curve change, only 1% progression in the uh, exercise group, seven degrees progression in the non-exercise group. And surgery was recommended at 5% versus 14% um, based off uh, significant progression. Um, there's a couple interesting things here. I know when I talk to my patients about uh, exercises, I'm kind of like, you know, the data is a little cloudy in your specific scenario, I also have the trouble if I don't have a great person who I can rely on to teach this stuff to these patients. I also tell them you're kind of on your own to find it. But all the patients look at it as this is going to be so much better than the brace. If I just didn't have to wear the brace, I would love to do this, right? So they did this interesting questionnaire about how enthusiastic they were about the treatment. And um, initially, on a scale of one to five, at the start of the study, patients, the children were 4.3 out of five in terms of interested in this after a year they were 2.8 out of five so they ended up hating and resenting their <laughs> exercises <laughs> kind of similar to what i imagine they're like with their braces and their compliance was around 50 percent in terms of what they were prescribed so um, that's interesting but if you can get them to do it then uh, it does seem to strengthen the effect um, and reduce the risk of progression so um, i think that's something that i'll talk about and use in my clinics starting next week Yep, Do you same. think though, Craig, that that decreased interest in the in or enthusiasm around the exercises? Because ultimately, didn't they show that there wasn't a difference in the percentage that needed to have surgery? Right, on, like the percentage of patients who had surgery recommended didn't differ between the groups. It, it, it differed. It differed in terms of percentage. It was not a large enough number to get a statistical difference, but it was five percent in the exercise group, fourteen percent in the, uh, which is a difference of five people versus two people. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, not significant. It wasn't powered for that. That wasn't their primary outcome. You'd obviously need a lot more for a yeah. surgical progression outcome, I think. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I buy that as real. I think it's very plausible that it makes a, a, a difference. And do any of you have access to a Shroth provider in your area? Mm -hmm. We do. Bible. Okay. Yeah. We, we have one in the entire Bay Area, but I might be wrong about that. It's just yeah, hard for families to get I think there. we've got one, but I, I, after reading the study, I plan to go and visit them and talk to them and hear more about it. Yeah. Yeah. I would being here, um, you know, we had two for a lot of years and then there just kind of became this trend that it became a competitive thing to get trot certified. So now we have 12 or 13 that have just really been certified in the last couple of years. So I have a list that I provide patients with to kind of tell where everyone is and help people find the closest one, which is helpful. That's great. great. I need to get with my institution and actually work on getting some of our internal PTs interested in it, I think. All right. I'll take the next one quickly. Um, so this is an interesting study. I would say it was a little eye-opening to me, looking at forearm fracture fixation with plates. So what percentage of kids still complain of achiness and pain in their forearm after being treated with plates at a mean follow-up of seven years? Craig? Uh, 25 Okay. Um, they say 100% of kids had some sort of symptoms still at seven years. I, I mean, I was I was really shocked to see that high rate. I, I really want to see a comparison study of plates versus non-op versus flexi nails. And 
I think before we can put it all on plates, I think you'd have to do these same outcome studies and, and kind of look at the same thing. The things that we think of, I think we're, we're pretty expected and 92% kids were satisfied with their surgery and three fourths of kids were happy with their scar. Um, but really kind of the forearm achiness and pain that so many, almost half, 41% of kids reported was, I, I was pretty surprised. It'd be interesting to see how that compared to other modalities um, of treatment for these. I feel like they're really subject to um, suggestion, right? I think that there is this overarching, I don't know what you want to call it, but this feeling that when the weather changes, your plates are going to hurt you. And like parents say this, their kids probably hear them say that. I think what they need to study, Josh, is a sham surgery to take them out, but you actually leave them in. And then you see <laughs> if just thinking that it's out makes it better, because I would suspect that's going to play some role as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and you know, I mean, we take flexi nails out, right? So that would be that to me that this is a, a great study for a larger group. You know, we've got lots of groups, trauma groups and different groups that uh, study things, but looking at seeing what the outcomes are of flexi nails, which are removed and plates that, you know, they took a fair number of plates and I can't remember 29%. So 30% had their plates removed, but I was shocked. I was surprised. And again, whether it's that we're leading them into complaining of it or not, um, I think that study should be able to answer that question. No, I was gonna say like the, a triple arm, right? Where like, as you said, Josh, like looking at the non-operative managed kids, right? Because, it, well, certainly, and if you show that non-operative management's like, say you maybe have a, you know, maybe not a perfect reduction in an adolescent, um, but you don't have achy arm pain over time, maybe that outcome would be better than the perfectly reduced, but achy, you know, plated forearm. And so maybe again, to encourage us to maybe not be as so interventionalistic on on some of the forearms, but but also what if it's just the breaking of the bone that hits the muscle and, hey, causes some fibrosis of the muscle that, you know, whatever it is, right? Maybe it's the trauma itself. And so regardless of technique, maybe they'll have this achiness. So I, yeah, I think just reading this just really makes you want to do that next study of, of comparing those three arms because th this is interesting, but without that comparison, it doesn't really tell us you know, what do we do with this information except for to advise families that, hey, you're probably, you know, regardless of whether or not we take these plates out, you're going to have some general achiness in your arm for at least seven years, which, you know, is a lot different than maybe what we tell people now. So it's, it's a definitely a, a, an interesting study and causes a lot of concern in terms of uh, what we should be advising people. Yeah, really eye-opening. I think we can all agree we need more sham surgery in pediatric orthopedics, though. I think that's the take-home point. That'd be great for the I, fact I study. Will. We could uh, do some <laughs> yeah. sham clavicle ORAF, just open it up, perfect. close it up. We could call the I'll alternative let... facts study group. I think we're on to something. <laughs> I really expect you guys to run with that. I was going to make sure I had the disclaimer that I'm not actually advocating for sham surgery. But, but uh, nevertheless... The last article is who benefits from allowing the physis to grow in Skiffy. Um, this is from the Sydney, Australia group, um, and they're investigating the free gliding screw. And I will just mention that one of the authors does have a conflict of interest of being uh, a consultant for orthopediatrics, which I believe they now own that screw. But anyway, uh, we've talked about this before in the indications. I'll just say that they looked at age, which some of the other studies have not and essentially found using a modified Oxford bone age of 13 as kind of their cutoff that, you know, obviously what you would expect, the young ones have growth. The young ones, when they grow, they maintain their articular trochanteric distance and go, don't get deformity. The older ones didn't seem to grow that much and they probably don't benefit from these. And then the question they raise at the end, which I think is a question all of us have, and I'd like to hear some pontification how much do they need to grow to make it worth it? And what is the point of the growth of these children who are you know, nearing adolescence? Um, or is it only in the young kids that we think that this is worth it, if at all? Colleen, I'm curious if you've used the free gliding or any sort of uh, growth saving screw for skiffies. And um, if you still use them, what's your indication? So I have not. I hope that doesn't make me a bad person. No, I just used, uh, you know, standard, standard screws. I think maybe I've just been fortunate that I haven't had, you know, super young skiffy patients or like my nine-year-olds that I've had are nine-year-old postmonarchal girls. And so not a lot of growth remaining anyway. And so that just hasn't really been much of a, of a concern to me. 
I think if I was seeing a ton of patients that were markedly skeletally mature and having skiffies, that this would be something that I uh, would have considered. Um, but yeah, don't don't have a lot of reflections on that from my own personal uh, practice and, and definitely have not used these. Yeah, your current method seems to work pretty well. Why change? Right? Yeah, it's it's been working for me thus far. <laughs> Josh Carter, do you guys have any thoughts? Have you guys changed since we've talked last? No, I haven't. And it's interesting because, you know, in our conversation earlier this week offline, you taking the complete and myself actually similar of really trying to get that physis to close, right? So doing extra oh, drill, right. yeah. stimulate more trauma to get it to close. That's an unstable, unstable skippy. I'm not going free gliding screws. You got to lock that down for sure. Yeah. So I think this article yeah. is interesting because, you know, and they even state that whether it's prophylactic fixing, maybe this is really a... a a key uh, where the free gliding screws might be more useful, but, but no, I haven't, I haven't found the, the real conviction to switch over to something that's growth accommodating. I haven't used it yet either. Uh, I'm an enthusiast. I plan to I, probably in anyone who's young enough that you're going to prophylactically fix the other side because of their youth. I, I think, I, I think this makes a lot of sense. I know yeah. we talked in the um, past about how the older ones, you might want to do it, not because of the longitudinal growth necessarily, but because of the remodeling potential. I'm not sure I buy that as much, even though we did talk about a study that suggested that there's statistically significant, maybe not clinically significant remodeling, but the, the longitudinal growth, um, I think it could make a difference. Yeah, this study does also talk about the remodeling, and they have some more findings that do corroborate what that prior study shows in terms of decreasing alpha angle um, and increasing the head-neck offset ratio as the kid grows. So maybe the mild slips, this maybe decreases your likelihood of impingement. And the other thing, Carter, if you are um, an enthusiast, none of their patients failed or had progression of their slips. So it at least seems effective at maintaining and stabilizing the slips. So maybe more expensive, maybe more complicated than some patients need, but it doesn't seem to be causing a disservice. So that at least any people who are interested in trying it, um, I think uh, you can do so with a little more uh, assuredness of that outcome. All right. That is our show. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. I learned all sorts of stuff. Now I know about gluteal fibrosis and post-injection paralysis and a bunch of other things. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Very educational for me, Colleen. Thank you for being here. Yeah, real pleasure to have you on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Welcome guys. back to the U.S. Thank you. Thank you.